This episode is brought to you by Horizon Books, back for a second season as our official sponsor and serving Seattle's book-loving community for 48 years with the best collection of used books in the city. Check out Horizon Books in Capitol Hill and mention Upzones at the register for a 10% discount today. That's right, mention Upzones at the register for a 10% discount at Horizon Books. Our sponsor is Horizon Books and this is Upzones. You have to elect yourself, Jamie. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. For starters, John Fight and Josh Fight are two totally different people. Apparently, that's a problem that I was not the only person to have when booking them both at separate times on the show. John Fight, not Josh Fight. John Fight. What's up, Upzonians? Hope everyone's doing well. Having a great, great Monday morning as you drive to work. We technically post these Sunday nights, so if you're listening Sunday night, hope you're having a great Sunday night. This has been great weather this weekend. Took the dog out to Pike Place Market, walked around, bought some flowers, went with Michelle. And it's times like these when you're walking around and you see the dense, beautiful, kind of urban environment that we could have. You, you start to thirst a little bit for more. So um, our guest today, this week, is John Veit. He is a decorated architect uh, f- with many years work history and portfolio history in not only uh, Seattle, but also Portland and the greater Pacific Northwest. And he's been extremely active on the I-5 LID project. In fact, he's one of the founders. I think it's a very interesting and important conversation to be having about how we uh, kind of undo the past, the the addiction that our cities of America wide and really Western worldwide have on cars. We have a highway running through the middle of our city that just absolutely tears the value out of the city. It makes living tough. You know, I think John's uh, objections are really more aesthetic than they are uh, social or justice oriented, but we're aligned on the outcome we want, which is let's let's cover that highway. And I know some radical folks in the urbanist movement who want to pull it out. And I think this is a, probably a good compromise. And, and anyway, to, to the political question, John is not exactly, he doesn't fit into any political trope I can name. I don't think he's, um, you know, this kind of libertarian urbanist. He's definitely not a left-wing social justice warrior. He's just sort of John Fight, And that makes the conversation with him really fun and interesting. So I hope you'll enjoy it. And uh, yeah, uh, John Fight. that so that was you i don't understand there's it, it, so josh fight now w- writes for seattle met or crosscut or politico politico something like that yeah okay he's a it, journalist it's so confusing he's so a journalist you're the one i wanted okay <laughs> but i think he sent an email to josh fight it's you know our names are so similar and yeah, we're about the same age. We look completely different, so there's not a physical confusion. Yeah, it's just right. it's just a, a, a amusing story that's been going on for about 25 years. 
Northwesterners named Fight who do like sort of civic. Yeah, and stuff. our names are similar. And Portland's a much smaller community, so it happened a lot more in Portland. Okay. And uh, Portland only had one kind of weekly news rag, which was Willamette Week, where Seattle, you kind of the stranger, and then Seattle Weekly. Seattle's a, the populations within the urban boundaries are the same, but the cities have a much different feel like seattle feels much bigger and much more complicated because the metro area is much bigger mm -hmm. and we have yeah. much bigger employers than portland has right. so that's so portland portland's is kind a of a more one, intimate yeah one horse town kind of or yeah one, one paper town kind of situation yeah so yeah. um yeah, it's, well it's so funny. for listeners like, but for listeners right yes uh, th there is a josh fight and a john fight there is and we i am here with john fight, fight. yes yes <laughs> architect and uh and uh, I-5 lid extraordinary. Yeah, and and um, I don't know. I was just having, I, I was late because I was having a conversation with a, a former, I wouldn't say employee of mine, but somebody I used to supervise. He's having a, a, he's an architect as well, and he's having a bit of a struggle. He's a, you know, what is this all about? Why am I an architect? Am I having the social impacts I want? You know, these kind mm -hmm. of big life questions. And I was reassuring him that, Oh, those are all fine questions to have. I was giving him advice. Uh, don't be too hard on yourself because he's yeah. a very, very bright guy. And he's, um, and <clears throat> I shared with him, as I often share with other people, I'm surprised the lack of engagement that architects have in a lot of civic discussions. Yeah. And it's not because architects are, you know, any brighter than the average person or any more committed to life or whatever. The thing that surprises me is most of us at least initially get into architecture because we like to draw, we like design, we like things that look nice. And obviously that has implications on the public realm. And most of us like cities and like, you know, walking around yeah. and yeah. obviously buildings, this all ultimately are, revolves around buildings. And it surprised me over my career, which has been about 25 years now. So I've been working, actually it's not about 25 years, it's 26 years that I've been working that more architects aren't involved in those kinds of, you know, not not to sound trite, but these kind of grassroots efforts. Not that not well, the grassroots architects are defining the, the spaces, right? I mean, the, the literally kind of creating the parameters of some of these spaces. So you would imagine that yeah, architects and, would be involved in that well, conversation. We're creating it um, to a lesser extent that you might realize because we we have clients we have to make happy. Yeah, sure, they, sure. They have to get built, so we're not um, unlike you know architectures is quasi but, art oh go ahead yeah but i would say i mean you know the the, the, I, the apple has iphone clients that they have to keep happy but they're the, you won't say steve jobs didn't create the iphone right I mean, yes there's, yes there's still a sense in which architects are very much defining we are uh, what 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 everything looks like and how it feels to walk around in and and, and and i guess i start out on my my more personal perspective of it because we have that inherent interest in it it doesn't, I'm just always been surprised it doesn't translate into more activism about improving sure. Makes a lot of the sense. public realm. Yeah. And I don't think I necessarily have better ideas or different perspective than a lot of my colleagues or maybe even care. 
more, or certainly hope I don't, if you know what I mean. I yeah. hope I don't care. It's funny but, how you just fall into it, right? Some, sometimes I'll meet people who definitely care more about something than I do, and I've, and, but yet I've had you know, a lot more experience engaging on the issues in civic, whatever. Just it's, I think it's, sometimes there's a, a luck or a randomness component to you meet the person at the, at the bar that does the city council thing. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're the one that's talking about it. It's, it, I, that's been my experience in some, in my, my past life was, uh, um, I worked with the, in federal government. Oh, okay. And, and you, you, you just sort of start getting involved because you talk to the person and the person talks to the person. And all of a sudden you, you don't necessarily have the most passion or expertise, but you're, the one in front of yeah, you're room. the one in front of it, and I'm just surprised more aren't because you would think at some point we all, as a baseline, most of us, if not all of us, share this basic interest in building in the built environment, and but that doesn't necessarily translate to a level of engagement in improving the right. public realm outside our direct clients and our direct yeah. way of making a living, which. That's certainly the most important way of doing it by building and having clients and patrons that allow you to build the best possible physical environment. But that's not the only way to do it because we ultimately, or in some ways, need to influence public policy. We need to translate our enthusiasm to the public, which is actually my favorite part about it, and make other people aware of the importance of mm-hmm. a better built environment. We've if, had that with science. I've had a, uh, someone on here who spoke about how scientists need to be doing that in their own way as well. Not just practitioners of like lab science, but also bringing science to the public, often in a political way, which is something scientists think they're above sometimes, quoting her. but. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, you know, Bill Nye, the science guy, right, that's, that a, that's a, yeah. a lot of things. So I say this in a way to that my thoughts and ideas aren't necessarily original or special. It's just there's not the amount of voices out there. Mm-hmm. So sometimes what I do and what I talk about seems different and exceptional, which it is, but it really isn't, and I don't really think it should be, but right. it kind of ends up being that right, way. Right, the architect paradox. Got yeah, because I, I, I actually show up and I talk. It's like, oh, but I am I look around me, why aren't there more architects saying the same thing? Because what I'm saying is kind of basic. So it's, it's through yeah. lack of engagement of others that I tend to be seen as more engaged and more involved. Right. So where'd you grow up? I grew up, uh, I was actually born in Paris, France, Lived there for a year and a half, so I don't remember it. Then I lived in Brussels, Belgium for the first three years of elementary school. Parents diplomats or um, military? My or? father worked for the CIA. CIA. He was a spy. Okay. Um, long retired. And <clears throat> then he retired early, and we returned to suburban Washington, D.C. So I grew up in placeless, nameless suburban Washington, D.C., which uh, was... VA or Maryland? Virginia. Yeah, like Vienna, Virginia, Vienna. In Fairfax County, which was... I had a great childhood, great number of friends. I actually loved high school, loved middle school, but hated that environment. Um, maybe it's because I still had recollections from youth that urbans... I, I liked urban areas, but I also hated the fact that it was hard to get around as a kid. Yeah. There was I, I didn't know what transit was, but I just knew that my parents had to drive me everywhere and mm-hmm. they weren't always mm-hmm. available. I knew that, you know, the only public spaces really were the mall, which seemed kind of stupid and limiting because it right. was private. And 
I yeah, and if you're not buying something, you're not welcome there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just, I didn't necessarily remember a better example, but I knew I hated the burbs. Yeah, yeah I'm not a burbs guy either. It's a big part. Of so, um, always wanted to be an architect since my whole life. Uh, above average drawer, so I had some graphic skills and. Is that how that works? You're you're in high school and they, and you say I can draw and they say, some guidance counselor says uh, you know oh why don't you think about architecture how, how does how does somebody, you know, go get to that brain space? I think in my case, having grown up in Europe, very young, I just was really amazed by you know the big buildings one sees in Europe, big cathedrals, Roman ruins, beautiful boulevards. With yeah, big, yeah, just tall you know six to eight stories everywhere yeah it's just gorgeous yeah. and i in in belgium has a, a well brussels has a relatively unknown space which is one of the greatest public spaces on earth which is Le grand place hmm. which was the main it's the the grand place or the grand piazza right like las ramblas in barcelona well no it's a contained space so it's like more like the piazza san marco is in venice or um so it's a contained urban space where a lot of the geld so you're going back to the 13th or 14th century and brussels and belgium was part of the hanseatic league which was a trading route where goods would come from the mediterranean and Instead of overland routes, which were very difficult because there are no roads and very treacherous, things would get shipped from the Mediterranean around the Iberian Peninsula, around France, along mm. the Belgian coast, up to markets in Belgium, Germany, Denmark, England. And I don't know, Brussels was a little inland, but certainly Bruges and Ghent were major ports of this trading network during the Middle Ages. And I think so a lot of the, the guilds you know, like the gold guild and the merchants became very prosperous and they built around the central square, which is actually quite large, these magnificent buildings like the leather crafters guild and the goldsmiths guild and the whatever, the furrier and the haberdasher. Mm -hmm. So there are these, all these um, guilds were kind of like trade unions in a way, but they had a much tighter control over admission and the way crafts were made. So they're their buildings were very opulent. They're trying to outdo each other. So it was... I see. I so was just going to ask, is that what leads to kind of... Because uh, nowadays, a lot of your union shops are actually very um, unassuming. Right? Yeah, but, but back then, it was just really tight. I mean, they, they had very tight rules of admission and um, apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. And, right, right. And you become a journeyman. Then yeah, you become, yeah right. but it was just super restrictive. Like mm-hmm. there was no way you could practice your craft unless you went through this very protectionist um, way of being educated. So uh, Belgium and Brussels in particular was very part of that system because of these trade routes. So Brussels became a, a fairly wealthy city at the height of these guilds. So their their main plaza is exceptionally opulent and really cool and i remember as a child going there with my father and sitting at cafe tables you know he's having his great belgian beer and i'm having actually rc cola if your your listeners remember that everyone knows rc cola because they're like the other yeah even if you don't only if you've never had it people know it as the metaphor for the third option yeah and it it was good it was popular in europe and uh i just kind of remember that and then i remember the the great parks with the buildings in them and so that i was always fascinated with that so that wanted i 
I credit that with always wanting to be an architect because I was just like, wow, this yeah. is so cool. It's, that's amazing how your, your childhood can impact you that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. So then you went to, you, you know, go to, go to school, Florida, right? Yeah. University of Florida. And I received an undergraduate in architecture there. Mm -hmm. And then I went to University of Virginia for graduate school. And that's, it's really hard to advance as an architect without a, 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 an MA, right? Or, or uh, not necessarily. There are oh. two paths. There's um, actually three paths. Mine is, is similar to what students who the University of Washington go to, which is where you're awarded what's called a pre-professional degree. And then you need to get a master's degree to get your pro first professional degree. So that's one path. That's called a four plus two. So you have a four-year undergraduate, two-year master's. WSU has a five-year professional degree, similar to like accounting, where you go an extra year and you get a professional degree, a Bachelor of Architecture, as opposed to a Bachelor of... I have a Bachelor of Design, which is an unusual name from Florida, but mostly it's called a Bachelor of Arts and Architecture, which I think is what the UW gives. Or the third option is you have absolutely no background in design whatsoever, and you go to graduate school for three and a half or four years mm -hmm. to get your first professional degree. Right. And then some people will get... <laughs> Their first professional degree, which is their five-year degree, and then might go to graduate school to get a second professional degree. But people who typically do that do it so they can enter academia because you that could already sense. practice as an architect. Right. And then PhDs in architecture are so incredibly rare. Unless you want to do academic work or whatever. Yeah. And to my mind, we we um, we do our research through building. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like that's the way. That's how you do it. So yeah. it's, it's pure academics or doctorates. So then you get out of school and you're just kind of, you know uh, – Okay, I'm going to build stuff, right? And you ended up, uh, what was it, in Portland, right? Portland, yeah. and that was uh, kind of when I was in graduate school at UVA. The, they're, they're mountains in Virginia. They're smaller than the ones here, but I just remember I had a window, I was sitting in a window for my first two semesters and just staring at the mountains all day, especially during the winter when they're covered in snow, saying, wow. And then I started hiking and doing more outdoors things, and I said, wow, I want to go where there are bigger mountains yeah, right. and uh that's why everybody comes here i think and, and, a, and a classmate of mine um who got a degree in planning moved to portland because her parents had moved there and i went to visit her and hung out in portland for a couple weeks with her it was completely like i i thought portland was going to be this cow town i mean mm -hmm. this was before portland was a name brand like it is now this is the early 90s and no one on the East Coast had ever heard of Portland. It was just completely... <laughs> they had the Blazers. That was about it. It was completely unknown. In fact, when you, when I told people on the East Coast I lived in Portland, they always said, oh, Seattle. It's like, no, not Seattle. Portland. No, Seattle. Like, they did just... Portland didn't... But now, of course, it's completely changed. It has right. this whole brand. But I was really enthralled with Portland. It was such a, a beautiful city, so compact, so livable, so progressive, so easy to get around yeah. and such. And I then, love how they don't have that sprawl. I love how it's yeah. very, you know, it's, it's, it's just the best way to keep, you know, to house a million people, but also kind of keep good natural spaces to kind of yeah. squeeze them together. Right? Urban growth boundary. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's very enforced. And I think Portland had the benefit of, from what I was told, Portland was, was primarily a resource based economy up through the 70s and 80s, and they didn't have the kind of up and down growth, especially Seattle 
Mm, Interesting. Boom and bust. So they were able to learn. Well, one, they didn't have big development pressures because there wasn't any big industry driving development. It was this kind of slow, lethargic. I mean, it's timber, timber and wheat. That's Mm. what Oregon had. They're actually, I think, the biggest wheat producer in the country or one of them. Mm. And they're a huge timber producer. So they were this kind of non-growth, steady industry. So the downtown didn't change very much. There Mm. weren't the big development pressures. And they could also look to the north and south, to San Francisco and Seattle, to see what not to do. Right. So then they were able to take a slower approach because they didn't have the pressures and learn from the mistakes of others to implement planning policies so that when people started moving there a lot in the 90s, and it was just coincidental, I moved there at the same time, but a lot of people came in from the 90s fleeing the Bay Area primarily because that's when it started to become so expensive. So Mm -hmm. you had a lot of people moving to Portland because they couldn't afford the Bay Area anymore. Which is happening here now. (laughs) Which is happening. Second wave, yeah. yeah. So then they were prepared for the growth they had because they had the policies in place. So they kind of lucked out. What would you say, I mean, now you're here, you've been here a while, right? You're, you're 16 years. Yeah. What would you say is the thing that, if you could change one thing about how we're growing, just one thing, you know, you only get one. What, what would you <laughs> say? Yeah. Because there's five. I know there's five or ten, but but which one would you pick? How we're growing. Um, there are so many. Uh, <laughs> this uh, is what we have edits for. <laughs> yeah. This is a probably more, it would be, okay, I'm, I'm looking for a solution, which is wrong. I should just concentrate on how we're growing. I think we're, we're, Seattle doesn't have a culture of physical planning. There's a difference between, planning has traditionally been, from my understanding of it, and I'm not a planner, but an outside observer and a bit of a student, has to do more with policies and writing policy to achieve planning like you you study a highway and you say yeah we need to grow in this way but it's very policy and language rich Mm. but it's not necessarily about form yeah drawing right um spaces spaces, physical space Yeah, yeah which is very important it's it's important to have both because the policy which often has to do with transportation which is a key one economic development Education. Or just economics, right? I mean, I, I've economics, not to weigh in too much because you're the guest, you know, but uh, it's just doing this now for about a quarter of a year, right? Mm-hmm. Not much time. It's amazing how many of my guests, in one way or another, basically put language to the idea that policy is just economics by other measures. Yeah. It's, it's the wealthy attempting to uh, retain their wealth. It's the it's the less well-off attempting to get their fair share. It's it's this like economic warfare via like the legislative process, and you see that played out in zoning would be one. Right? Uh, For example, I wouldn't take uh, yes, but I wouldn't necessarily. I think oftentimes those arguments are buried in cynicism, and mm. you know I haven't gotten mine, so those who have gotten theirs have wronged me, and I don't. I think people ultimately look out for their own self-interest for, for the most part. And I think that's understandable. And I, you know, oh, you know, the, the curious thing is a lot of, in terms of urban design and urbanism, a lot of, well, cities have always been shaped by developers, right? You go back to 
Rome and there were big landowners there who would develop their property, sell it, or be tenants and co collect rent. That's the earliest example I know that's actually quantified, but the Greeks might have probably did that. The Mesopotamians probably did that. The Egyptians sure. probably yeah. did that. The Chinese, I'm sure, did that. So you always had landowners that... So it's it's not a recent capitalist thing. It's... Right. They've been the haves and haves-nots. And it's often led to some great urban spaces and a lot of the major parks, certainly in Europe and to lesser extent in the United States were formal. Well, not in the United States, they weren't Royal grounds, but big parks in Europe were often where the palace was. And then they seeded it as they went from a monarchy to more democratic form of government. Their big palace grounds became the major park in the city. Yep. So that's a direct translation of, the behest of the wealthy benefiting the good. And it wasn't until I lived in New York that I really got appreciation that, you know, New York is the great city. It is uh, primarily, well, I've been a student of New York. It's a great city. It is for a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost is because it was a great trade center for a long time. Not so much anymore because labor costs got too high. And because of the great wealth it generated and the great benefactors that became from the mm -hmm. wealth, the yeah. largest of people. I mean, Lila Atchikin, Atkinson Wallace, who was the inheritor of the Reader's Digest fortune. Reader Di Reader's Digest at one time was the most widely circulated magazine in the world. Right. She, it was hard to go to a museum or a public space that didn't have her name attributed to it. She gave so much money back to New York for public space and art. I mean, that's just the name I always remember, but there, there are other people. That's how it works, right? Tish, so, you name it. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, yeah. and so I think to a certain extent, this, this emphasis on the wealth, the wealthy are always trying to screw the poor and the poor well, don't that's get what not they what want. I, that's not where I'm coming from. I'm just, I, I, yeah, I'm paraphrasing. I'm suggesting that, 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 you know, that it, it feels like there's a sentiment that, that this drive toward policy uh, in shaping a city is about people attempting to either retain what they have or get what they don't have. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I think that's, I think they're the, the people that have the means, meaning the wealth are more effective about it. But I think if, if other people who aren't as engaged had those resources, they'd probably be doing the same kind doing of the thing. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think it's, yeah, I don't think wealth corrupts or the wealthy, they're just doing, they're looking out for their own yeah. best self-interest, so just like most people are. Your position is that uh, there maybe in this city, there needs to be a, a move away from having such policy-rich um, uh, design and moving it more toward like, what is the space? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I think that gets beyond, uh, in addition to the rules you set forth, I think policy... So to a certain extent, drawings can be interpreted any number of ways, but policy certainly can be interpreted a wide variety of ways. And until you, you know, as, as architects and designers, what the only thing we really create are drawings. And yeah, there's like a lot of society, and this is a separate topic, there's this whole emphasis on the maker's movement is mm -hmm. now in architecture. And a lot of architects have research departments and they, they create prototypes and I'm a, I'm a little skeptical of that because yeah we don't do prototypes we do buildings right. you know study and research you research by building a building okay so 
I'll come back to ultimately we draw and we draw as a way to come up with built form. So if we have drawings to support policy, we'll end up with better defined results because we actually see what it looks like. Right. And seeing isn't necessarily a conclusive evidence that it will be right, but it gets you a lot closer to understanding what the physical outcome will be than just a bunch of drawings and, I mean, a bunch of text and graphs and mm -hmm. pie charts mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that, you know, can be interpreted a lot, a lot more ways. ways. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting theory. And that leads me, fr you know, frankly, to why I was so uh, excited to have you on, which is this concept of the I-5 lid, mm -hmm. something I've been personally following. And I think a lot of folks maybe uh, among my listenership might, might not know what it is. So do, do you want to tell them? Yeah, um, that's... Yeah, it, that's a big that's a big story. So I can give you a, a somewhat long condensed view. I think I think what we're having is it's part of a a larger shift. And you know, the first freeway lid in the country was that I know of was Freeway Park in Seattle, hmm. and that was opened in 1976. So it's 42 years old, and. So you're getting it. This is not some revolutionary no, idea. No, 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 This happens everywhere in America now. It does. There's about 50 built or in-design lid projects, eight which are in the Puget Sound. We have the five lids under construction or have they been built on the 520 floating bridge. We have Freeway Park as a lid. Olympic Sculpture Park is a lid. It goes over Elliott Avenue and the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. And we have the lid on the west side of the I-90 tunnel was it, as it goes through Mount Baker mm -hmm. neighborhood. So why lid? Um, because we need to, it's, it's really about reconnecting people. Mm. And I mean, that, that's the most important thing and giving people more options about the way they want to conduct their, their daily life by giving them more choices about how to get places. So I think it's a fundamental benefit of living in an urban environment is having a lot of different variety of experiences to have. And if, at least that's what I, I think a lot of us find stimulating, whether they're social experiences or, you know, I love to walk and take photographs or, you know, it's a means to get to work or whatever. Mobility and personal mobility is important. And Interstate 5 presents a great barrier to getting across, especially not so much in the downtown core, but as you get further you know north of say denny avenue the next crossover is i call it roy street but there's that flyover north of that and then you have to get all the way to the university of washington right. until you have to cross it it just cuts the whole city in half it cuts the whole city in half and then the options we have for crossing i-5 are not good they're noisy they're smelly they're ugly so it 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 hinders social interaction, hinders personal choice, and it's also just a visual blight. It's mm -hmm. noisy. It's there's a reason that um, a lot of homeless people camp along Interstate Five because it's it's an environment that people don't care about mm. immediately adjacent to highway. So the stewardship level and the expectations of personal behavior are a lot lower because the physical environment is very poor because of the, the air pollution, the noise, the trash that collects around it. Interesting. The lack of 
Yeah, and there's a carcinogen issue there too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, right? yeah. There's you know heavy metals from brake dust and all all kinds of things. Yeah. So you know just. And it's space, right? Space is at such a premium in this city in particular right now. Uh, here, Austin, San Francisco, the super growth cities, right? And and it sounds, it seems to me, one of the reasons I'm very interested in, in, in this is that you could reclaim in the two-dimensional sense, right? You could just claim a ton of space that's been just completely pulled out of the city. You know, what, what's the width of a highway? You know, 150 oh, feet or two, more, 300 more feet? That, yeah. yeah, probably like the right-of-way. I'm guessing it was a full city block. Yeah. It's got to be over three hundred feet. Three hundred feet. So if you got a three hundred feet, if you got a whole city block, oh yeah, back that ran the length of the city, and then so my question to you is, how high could you build on one of these lids? How many how many stories could the buildings be? Well, that's that that's a, a there's a, a decision and a trade off. And the higher you can build on any piece of land, conceivably, the greater value it has. So you go I five, and I'll be a little somewhat informed numbers, but a little fast and loose. East of I-5 on Capitol Hill, where I live, land might be going for, I don't know, four to $500 a square foot, let's say, depending on its zoning and exactly mm-hmm. where it is. Mm-hmm. Land on the west side of Interstate 5, where the zoning is, say, 240 to 400 feet, I think, might be going for two or three times that much. They might be 500 feet apart. It's just the zoning or the policy designation that dictates the value of right. it. So, in order to build a big building on a lid, I think in our situation, it mostly has to do not with the gravity loads or how much the building weighs. It has to do with the seismic zone or seismic loads, which is the back and forth that happens during an earthquake. Because all loads of a building or all the weight of a building, and this makes sense, Ultimately, has to be transferred to the ground. Right. Onto the All buildings are supported. So yeah. you'll have to take something and transfer those loads back to soil. It's always got to go back to soil. And if you're over a space of air, obviously, you don't have that opportunity. So your structure to tie you back to terra firma has to be that much more robust. So the trade-off comes with how much more robust do you have to make the structure to take a bigger building where does the cost of that structure get to a point that it no longer creates enough value in the land that that trade-off no becomes reasonable? So I don't know what that answer is. Well, what, what have you, I know you've done a bunch of events and, and I know that folks in your community have created models and everything. What are most people seeing? I mean, you know, what, what's the kind of middle ground that you're starting to see around what that lid would look like if we covered I-5? Oh, um, well, that's a slightly different question because we're, we're not doing any technical analysis and that's that's uh, what we hope to do. We recently were awarded the million and a half dollar grant, or we weren't, the city of Seattle was because of our advocacy to address those kinds of more empirically based questions mm-hmm. about you know the trade-off between building height, cost of structure, and residual value of land. But what we're doing in our study is we've been we've had several public events over the last couple of years and i think when people well i know because i've seen the evidence of it when people think of a lid they think of freeway park or clyde warren park in dallas they think of a park as a lid like Mm -hmm. oh we're gonna build a lid we're gonna put a park on it olympic sculpture park which i think is natural because the thing one of the things we're really lacking downtown is open space Mm -hmm. but for a number of reasons, I think primarily the, the important one is we're not, as a, as a society 
and as a, a result of our relatively low density population we're not great stewards of public space we have a lot of problems about crime or some problems about crime and maintenance in our public spaces so doing a, a big public space through the center of seattle that doesn't have enough indirect and direct stewardship meaning funds committed to it to properly maintain it and supervise it so that's a that's a maintenance cost then there's the indirect stewardship of people who look out on the the park space and people say, who live around the park or whatever and yeah. care so i don't think a park space is an extensive park space is the right answer but i think open space is a big component so what we've done is in this recent initiative we have which is the result of a department of neighborhoods grant is take a section of the central city lid and I think it's important to state that we're we're advocating for litting as much as Interstate 5 through Seattle as possible. Mm -hmm. We're focusing on the central city for a couple of reasons. One is, I mentioned that million and a half dollar grant that the city of Seattle was awarded as part of the public benefits of the Washington State Convention Center expansion. Well, to be true to that award, I think we need to be proximate to where the convention center is. Mm -hmm. So we have to be stewards of that money. Also, so that's one. So we're kind of focusing on the center city too. That's where the most amount of activity and people are. Three, it's along with a couple of other examples, it's the easiest to see being littered because it has the high embanking walls on either side. And you don't, I mean, you have to build a structure to support it but you're basically connecting the dots right. where if you get it's to... It's not a grade or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so there's a number of reasons that focus on it. So related to the central city, so between Marion and Thomas Streets is what a separate pot of money, which is through a Department of Neighborhoods grant, uh, which was $48,000, we took that chunk of land and divided it into three programmatic sections. So the first one goes from Marion to Pike Street, and that is the program emphasis there and the program emphasis is not at the expense of other elements being created meaning that that program emphasis is recreation open space which doesn't mean there can't be buildings there it just means that that's going to be primarily open space why in that location because we have freeway park which is a great design but needs some love and support because yeah. it's not as used as much as it can so right. i'm a firm believer in let's improve the public assets we have before we spend money on new ones so focusing on that area and open space is one way to achieve that the next one would be from pike street to olive way mm -hmm. the emphasis there is commerce and yeah. pike pine and that would connect that would connect you to like the theater there right? yeah paramount theater paramount theater and then up into so you'd have a for listeners right uh, it can be hard to visualize so we'll try to post something yeah. if you can send me some material sure uh but but um the idea is you, you would just have a little walk from the Pike Pine Corridor right over to the Paramount Theater, right? With the which, second, you, yeah, which you can yeah. do now, but it's not it's not a really great walk. No, and yeah, you're dodging traffic. And, yeah, and yeah. it's just, it's, it's bad. But also, in terms of fitting in with a larger context, Pike Pine is the main east-west commercial corridor on Capitol Hill. And to a lesser extent, downtown, it's an important commercial corridor, but there's also existing city plans that want to, they have this market to market concept, which is Pike Place Market to Melrose Market. Mm. And it's, you know, the most vibrant part of Seattle. I mean, we're talking right now here, right off Pike Street. It's very vital. So that's the commerce section. And then north of Olive is the housing 
focus. Sure. And that is one, we, we need more housing. So that's easy. But also that's located because at least to my eye, and I, I didn't study this, but certainly among the most densest housing in Seattle is I-5 Shores along Melrose Promenade, where you have a lot of seven and eight story buildings right there. So you already have a nice housing density. So how do you transition that housing from Capitol Hill down to Denny Triangle and South Lake Union, that neighborhood? And the purpose of dividing it up into those program areas is to have uses that support one another so that they can all be successful. So you create a holistic ecosystem. That's one, because I think that's leads to the most successful urban spaces. Two is this is a very, will ultimately be a very big and complicated project, especially because it's in Seattle and we, we love process here in Seattle yes, we do. and, and we'll, we'll need as many supporters as possible. So, which means, people who advocate for affordable housing, people who advocate for economic or business development, people who advocate for walkability, cycling, open space. So mm -hmm. because we need those advocates and because that mix of uses leads to the best possible outcomes in terms of the urban environment, we're not advocating for any specific use, but through this initiative, the Central Hills Triangle Collaborative, this DON grant, we're mixing up the uses to show others that there's a lot of different potential out there. So that's... Let me ask you something. So if we built, you know, if we were to build one of these lids, like let's take the commercial, right? You've got this flat land, right? And I know that there'd be easements or whatever that would have to happen, but does a developer come in and buy that land back from the city? Well, Washington, the state of Washington owns Interstate 5. Right. They own that land. Including the, all of the physical space up to the sky? Is yep. that how that works? It's a... Uh, it's a, a right of way that goes up to the sky. What I, I yeah, we, sh we should do this because it's public record. But what, what we're imagining would happen is, or one, one model, let's say, is that they would lease the land. So the Sound Transit development on Capitol Hill, Sound Transit and the developer who's developing it, they have a 70, the developer has a 75 year ground lease with Sound Transit. Got it. And that that, that's sense. that's a long enough lease that pretty much it says the developer has long term surety that they can realize an economic return on it. But ultimately, the public owns the land. So they have within the terms of the lease agreement, they retain ultimate control. I think Washington state would do the same kind of thing where they would lease certain portions for building realize a capital gains or a, a large return on investment on taller buildings to help subsidize yep. open space, affordable housing. I mean, there are ways to do it. Sound Transit is starting to do that with some of their remainder parcels because Sound Transit typically overbuys when they develop a station because they need what's called a lay down area to lay down all their construction materials, mm -hmm. have their construction trailers or heavy equipment. So even though they might just end up in Capitol is a great example, even though their station might take up half a block, they need two or three blocks to stage for contractor parking, heavy machinery. When they dig soil out, they need a place to dump it off or for the dump trucks to come. I mean, it takes a big space when you dig a big hole similar. So they're, they're starting to set aside or they have programs to help underwrite affordable housing on their sites. That's a public agency. I would imagine WashDOT could arrive at a similar kind of deal where they 
you know, steal from Peter to give to Paul. Right. Or they, they, sure, they, sure. They, they charge market rate to subsidize below market rate. And how, how would somebody get involved? What if, if you're interested in this and someone's listening and they say, yeah, I want to, I, I want to be part of this effort to create, you know, a better, more livable space, kind of push I five underground, so to speak. How does somebody get involved? Uh, well, we have a website. It's lid l i d i letter i and the number five dot org, which explains our whole um, campaign and has a way to sign up there as as well as a way to donate because we're all volunteers. And then we have some expenses ongoing, you know, producing graphic materials. Um, renting rooms for events, things like that. So that's that's one way. Um, so going to the lids, the lid site, the website, understanding our campaign a little bit more, better. Also seeing a lot of built examples, both locally and nationally. The the range of uses that are on lids. Some are completely built up. Some are completely parks and open space. So you can see what the range is, and it it says what our events are and how you can actively participate by contributing to design, such as through this DLN grant, the Central Hills Triangle Collaborative, which is the three sites. So you can actually do physical design. You can participate in the audience. We have regular check-ins. We just had one this Tuesday. Our next one is in August. On the website, it says what those dates are. Um, we, we like to end every show with a segment we call, If You Care About, You Should. Fill in the blanks. Okay, I could give a, a pretty tangible example. Um, if you care about our the physical environment, like I do and many others do, there are a lot of easy public processes. The, the, the most well-known one is design review, which is neighborhood-based, where you can testify in public to larger... Um, venues such as the Design Commission, which deals with bigger urban design. For instance, they have purview of the Seattle Central Waterfront or the Planning Commission that you don't need an expertise. You don't even necessarily need to be very articulate about what you say. You just need to express an opinion. And that is one of the parts of the Seattle process is being able to express your opinion on development all right. That it, that occurs. And it's easy and you don't have to be an expert and it's well advertised on different City of Seattle websites. John, thanks for being on the show. Sure. Yeah. See you next time. Yeah. That was John Fight, founder of Lid I5. They've got an event this week if you're interested in what they're putting down. Uh, check them out this Wednesday, October 3rd, 5.30 p.m. at Melrose Market Studios. They're going to talk about the Pike Pine Urban Neighborhood Council, and it's kind of like the finale of a joint design initiative. I think it's pretty cool. It's building a city. Thanks to the Subcons for their music. Thanks to Anthony McPherson for his dope opening poetry sample. Thanks to Naboo for cutting sound. I am your host, Ian Martinez. This is UpZones. My favorite. See you next week. Thank you.